Hi guys and welcome back to the Rach Active Podcast. My name is Rach J. I am your host. I'm also a master coach and I'm super excited to welcome my guest to the show today. Now, he is a psychologist and you may also know him if you're a hardcore Neighbours fan, you might know him as Riley Parker from Neighbours and he happens to be one of my best mates. So this is going to be a really interesting conversation. I feel like when you and I get on the phone together, we, we kind of don't really talk for less than a couple of hours. So you guys are going to get a bit of an insight into... Um, I guess behind the scenes, just a tad. But welcome to the show, Sweeney Young. Thank you for having me. And I think you would have to be a very hardcore Neighbours fan to remember me from whatever it was when I was on the show. Yeah, but I mean, like you know, if you are a Neighbours fan, you probably would. Yeah, there's you. people. There's some people out there who you know have like encyclopedias of Neighbours stuff and sure. know it back to front exactly. And probably collect light bulbs and are fascinated with train timetables as well. And they'll also be like, and I remember that guy because he was on the same time Dean Geyer was on and they both looked the same. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And uh, and you guys got confused with each other all the time, didn't you? Yeah. he. Uh, did he get you? Did he get me? What do you as mean? As in like, did he get confused for you or did you just- It like, went both ways. Went yeah. Both so yeah, I was in high school when this dude Dean Geyer appeared on uh, Australian Idol or Australia's Got Talent or whatever and- um, uh, people started thinking I was on Australian Idol, but I can't sing for shit, so it obviously wasn't me. Well, that's how you could debunk that. Yeah, and then I ended up on Neighbours as one of the regular cast members. And then he joined the cast, and I was like, well, they're probably muscling me out because he's more famous than me, and we look the same. And um, they did, didn't they? Yeah, and then they did. They kicked me <laughs> off, the fuckers. But anyway, Dean's a lovely – he's a wonderful guy. He's lovely. I love Dean. Anyway, so we became mates, and um, I was in the car with a bunch of mates going to a basketball game. Uh, we all played basketball since we were little kids. And a guy came and squeezed, was cleaning our windows. And he was like, oh, g'day, Dean. How are you? I can clean your windows for free. And I'm like, no, mate, that's not necessary. No, I'm, I'm actually not Dean Guy. And, 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 and he's laughing. Like all the guys in the car are laughing. And this guy's like, oh, yeah, sure, sure thing, Dean. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not Dean. I don't know why I labored the point. And he's like, oh, do you know Dean? And I'm like, well, yeah, actually, I mean, actually I do. And that was too much for him. It confused him. <laughs> anyway, so he cleans the window for free. And then as we're driving off, I thought he'd understood that I'm not Dean Guy. He yells out, bye, Dean. <laughs> anyway, yeah, but there, there was one scene where we were kicking the footy to each other in the show and I would kick it and then he would catch it. And I remember when I saw the episode, it looked like someone kicking the footy to, <laughs> to themselves. themselves. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It's a funny running joke. I feel like it's, it was a good, um, a good time to be on the show though. Yeah. So like one of the things that I have done with, with my guests is um, because a lot of the episodes we recorded during COVID and so obviously hadn't seen people in person. But since we are seeing each other in person, because now lockdown has eased somewhat in Melbourne, which is amazing. What I thought would be fun is to reflect on when we first met each other. So um, Sween and I actually, we've, no, we've been in each other's lives for a very long time and we actually met in LA, which um, do you remember where we met? Yeah, it was like the den or some place on Sunset Boulevard, right? Ben Lawson's party. I ben think. Lawson's party, yeah. but it wasn't the den. It was um, Cabo Cantina. Which oh, is all, really? Which oh, is, shit, I remember that place. Which yeah. is also on Sunset Boulevard. I went there a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and the way that we know each other is actually through, we have a mutual friend, um, Damo. That's how we met, I think. Mm. Um, so, guys listening, if you're, you know, if you've been watching Aussie television, you, you'll know Damien Bodie off a gazillion different shows, probably mm. more recently... Um, Probably winners and losers was more the most recent thing that he's been on. But anyway, I feel like um, that party to me, when I reflect back, I feel like it was kind of like a neighbours and home and away kind of like 
reunion party or That's something. That's just what every hangout in That's true. LA is with Aussie actors Because, you know, Neighbours at Home and Away, it's like the village bicycle. Everyone's had a ride, you know. Everyone does their dash on those shows pretty yeah, much. Yeah, that's true. So, it's a, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's always going to be that kind of a That crew, right? Yeah. So, I feel like most of the, most of my Aussie actor friends I met uh, in LA, which is really weird since we're all Australian. But, um, and, I mean, we had Ariel Kaplan on the show uh a few episodes ago and obviously... On this show? Yeah. Oh, I know Ariel. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Ariel, for guys listening, played Imogen, I can't remember the last name, Imogen something or other on Neighbours and our mate Timmy Phillips played her love interest, Daniel Robinson, I think it was, and I met Timmy through you and like pretty much all my other Aussie actor mates are from LA, almost probably from that party as well, Imogen Bailey and... Mm. Yeah. I mean, Dean Guy was there. He was there that night too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, you know, everyone does their dash on those shows, so yeah, that's who you're going to get. You throw a dart out the window, and I can't complete that analogy because it doesn't make sense. Let's just leave it there. Yeah. and uh, move on. <laughs> Segwaying on. So we obviously both connected being actors and living in LA and obviously having that experience. You were there for, I think it was like three years, wasn't it? And I sort of was in and out of town for those three years as well. So we both had that experience. But we did, yeah, we hung out a bunch in Melbourne and in LA. But I'm really curious to know, you know, sort of what you felt like your, I guess, greatest lesson was from living in LA because it was a pretty incredible time, that experience. Yeah, it was good to, you know, Go and chase a dream, you know. I mean, that's awesome. I think I learned a lot from that. That yeah. if you want to do something, you can pursue it. I didn't yeah. get any real work over there. I did a lot of stand-up comedy, which I loved. And, uh, you know, no one can stop you doing that in a bar. But in terms of paid work, I had barely any paid acting work over there. Um, I did like 30 seconds on this god-awful uh, American TV show that actually filmed in Australia once I got back. And I felt like oh, that Terranova. was... Oh, Nova. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, 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 I was purposely not saying the name, but whatever. It's trash. <laughs> it, it, does, Sorry. it does suck. Don't watch the reruns. We've all done shows that no one wants to say what the names are. So. Yeah, I did a Hungry Jack set, right? When, when do, we don't all do like the Bell Shakespeare <laughs> Company stuff. But yeah, so uh, uh, yeah, I, I felt like that was the universe going, you know what? You, you slaved away for two years, two and a half years in LA. Uh, all those grueling, awful auditions. Here, have have a little something. Here's 30 seconds on an American <laughs> show just to kind of feel like, you know, I was getting something back. It's a, it's a tough industry, guys. And I know, like, I know I've had a lot of actors on the show because most, most of my friends are actors. Um, but, you know, like, I think the perception of being an actor is a lot different to actually the process of being an actor and particularly when you're going and doing the LA thing. Like, it's, it's like a bit of a slog, really. And you guys that were on the ground there for that whole time... It's hard, right? Well, like, kind of. But, I mean, you know, what's a lot harder than that? Getting up at 5 a.m. to go work on a trade site six That's hours a day, true. whether it's raining or not. That's, That's shitloads harder than being an actor. I mean, for me, the hard thing about acting, I reckon, is there's no structure inherently. So, you've got to create your own structure. That's very hard. For so, you? For me, yeah, because I wasn't working a huge amount. You know, like, you had, act, you know, jobs here or there or whatever. But, like, yeah. you know, I think if you're, if you're on a show or whatever, yeah, you get structure. But when you're trying to get work, which 99% of actors are trying to get work, you know, 90% of the time rather than actually working because there's not much work and there's a lot of actors. Mm. That's where the difficulty comes from. And the difficulty comes from feeling like you're nothing without an acting job and you've got too much of your self-worth tied up in being an actor and being right. on set and all of that, I reckon. I didn't you know? feel that. Did you Did you feel that? Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, way too much of wow. – not a huge, huge amount, but too much of my self 
worth was tied up in right. being an actor and being successful as an actor. And, you know, you poison anything that you – uh, need so much from you know yeah well anything external to yourself I feel like if you're placing and that can be you know especially with my guys listening who are in the health and fitness space which is it, it's really prevalent in the fitness space that if you kind of um, prescribe yourself or self-worth to like your outward appearance or something external to you it can be really dangerous obviously because mm. any of those things can be quite temporary yeah so aside from LA and we I feel like at that time to um, connected very much on – well, we're both really interested in human behaviour, mm. uh, just separate to acting as a craft. We both studied Meisner and um, also we, we connected on spirituality and kind of having an interest in in spirituality. Now, I know like for a lot of people that I know now in the fitness space have come – which is really interesting – have come to a spiritual practice from um, a movement practice like yoga, but that was not my experience and I feel like my first experience of, you know, sort of spirituality was through acting. And like I did a show after I graduated from my university degree and the director, I was working in a play and as sort of part of our rehearsal, he took us through a, a meditation prior to us like getting stuck into our rehearsal. So that's how I kind of came to it. But then I think you and I sort of really connected on that when we met too. So do you remember kind of what your your approach to spirituality was at that time? Yeah, I'd, um, I was into Eckhart Tolle and Nisargadatta. Yes. Uh, oh, can I just interject quickly with Nisargadatta? Cause, yeah, please. Yeah. So um, just for you guys, this is the kind of shit that Sweeney sends, sends me. Oh, fuck. What have I sent you? Do you remember this? Whoa, that's a huge fucking thing. Did I send that to you? I didn't type that out, by the way. I just copied on it from here, the, the written book. And on here, on the visual. You have to scroll through to show how big it is. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like three, three or four scrolls long. You know, if that was an email, it would be a short email. It's just long because it's a text. So on Nasagadata, guys, again, uh, Sweeney sent me this text a few weeks ago. And it's like literally like if I scroll, it takes like three or four, like four or five scrolls yeah, to get through like the whole thing. It's like forwarding an article. You know what I mean? I just yeah. did the trouble of clicking on the link for you already. I'm a generous guy, saving your Thanks thumbs. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, so let me just read you a little passage from it, just so you kind of get the idea of Nasagadada, right? So, because um, he, he wrote a book called I Am That. I remember you recommended me to. Yeah, I did, I'm still reading that, still by my bedside. So, timeless being is entirely in the now. The reality of immediate experience is here and now, which cannot be denied. You can question the description and the meaning, but not the event itself. Realize the momentariness of being and not being and be free from both. Now, so Sween sent me this really long text message, like, four, you know, five scrolls later. And then I wrote back to him, oh, this book, what a mind fuck in itself, which was, which pretty much sums up my um, thoughts about Nasaga Data yeah. and that book. So I Am That, right? We're talking about I Am That, the book. It's fucking dense. It's very dense, but it, it's a you, dense you book. can enjoy little morsels because it's questions and answers with this uh, dude, Nasaga Data, yeah. right? Uh, so people go with their problems, uh, you know, what am I? What is the nature of consciousness? All of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ask him, he gives an answer. And someone wrote it down. So you can, you know, pull it up, read a few pages or a few responses. But yeah, I mean, I think I've often throughout my life been plagued by this sense that something's just not quite like there's there's something to be found in terms of 
the question, what is the meaning of life, right? Like I felt like for a long time there's an answer to that that I could <laughs> find if I worked hard enough or looked carefully enough, you know, yeah. that I could understand what I am, what it is to be human, what it is to have a mind and be conscious and aware mm-hmm. and that then I'd get some peace from some kind of like existential splinter in my mind or something. And I remember um, – so I asked – Almost everyone, what do they think the meaning of life is? Like my ca- taxi drivers, my Uber drivers. What do they That's say? why I've got a 4.9 on Uber. I was <laughs> hanging out with like eight friends the other day. They're all psychologists and mine was the highest because I go deep. With you everyone. go deep. But I remember I asked you one time when we were hanging out like a year ago. And I was like, what do you, th- do you think much about like what the, what's the meaning of life? And you go, no, because I think it's a ridiculous question. And that <laughs> blew my mind and I'm kind of – jealous in the same way that you might be jealous of like a like a an amoeba or like a some kind of you know animal that doesn't have the consciousness to question what they're doing they just what walk are you around saying, I'm saying you're like a amoeba you know like <laughs> amoeba goes to the shops it comes back it walks around it you know no but that's not the reason why i think it's a ridiculous question <laughs> no i know what i'm saying what i'm saying is i'm envious but i'm wrapping my compliment up in an insult. Yes. So, for some so reason. So it's like a backhanded compliment. Yeah. I see. But so yeah, that, that blew my mind that you're not <laughs> kind of constantly thinking about it because I feel like almost – why wouldn't you constantly think about it? I think recently I've had some experiences of kind of like uh, profound kind of connection, you know, like a right. bit of, an, you know, like altered states of consciousness that have given me an experience of feeling connected to everything in a way that at least for now is lingering. Uh, so I definitely have some – I guess I've got an insight into what it's like to be you where you can just go, oh, there's no point worrying about that. Mm-hmm. Just live, you mm-hmm. know. So I'm doing better at just kind of um, living, living, you know, yeah. and just just being. I think I've always been quite happy. Like I've got quite a good happy baseline, which I'm grateful for, mm. unless something's particular is going on that's awful. But, yeah, that's always been a bit of a sticking point for me. It's always been kind of this awful – Sometimes it's fascinating, sometimes it's awful, but it's been a bother. And now, at least at the moment, the burden's lifted. I'm not bothered by it. Well, that's good to know. And it's, I, I remember those conversations relief. that yeah. we've had about that. But I would I would say to you, like, I think we've sent, after that text message that you sent me, I said, the point of life is to live. Yeah, I remember you kind of coached me on that a bit. Yeah. yeah. But I have actually, because we were going to get to this a bit later, but since we're talking about it now. Yeah, tell me. You said, Rach told me, by the way, on the, on the phone when we were teeing this up, that she has the answer for me on the meaning of life. And I'm like, well, tell me now. And she said, no, I'll tell you on the podcast. So. I, I do feel that this is going to quell your your curiosity about it because Sween's kind of a deep thinker and likes to ponder things. And I, I feel like that's your mind just kind of not being satisfied with any answer that has been given. Mm. Don't you feel? And so I... Um, had recently read a book and I feel like this may resonate with you and and it kind of breaks down the meaning of life. Okay. So I recently read a book, which I have recommended to you guys before. Um, It's called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Oh yeah. I've read it like three times. And so you don't know the, the meaning? He gives he, you the he answer. He says create your own meaning, something broader than yourself, okay, right? Okay, so like let me let me let me break down the, the, the meaning of life. So guys Please. if you are sort of, you know, contemplating the purpose of your life or what you're doing with your life or um, you know, finding a deeper meaning to feel fulfillment, 
this is what Viktor Frankl says. So Viktor Frankl is a, a psychiatrist who was a prisoner of war um, during the concentration camps and he was um, imprisoned there for quite a while um, in Auschwitz. So as you can imagine, I know we've all been going through COVID and a lot of people have been struggling during this time. But I've Yeah, that was worse, by the way, just in case you're wondering where Rach is going with that. Yeah, so I've, I've read this book and I think I've recommended to all of you guys, like if you feel like you've been struggling, read this book and you'll, you'll kind of be alleviated from your feeling of pain during um, COVID. But he basically um, breaks down meaning. So there are three things that will give you meaning in your life. And basically you create meaning, okay? You decide upon meaning. We all have that power. To, what a pressure. To create, yeah, it's taking responsibility for your life essentially instead of placing it on someone or something external to you, right? Mm. So you can break it down into th- these three things. The first thing is creating a work or doing a deed. So that, I guess, in modern day terms would be sort of like finding something to do for someone else in service of someone else in your career or whatever it is. Two, experience something or encountering something. And the way that I kind of interpreted that was more either being in love or caring for another person that you love, right? So having someone outside yourself to care for or love. And the third thing is the attitude that we take towards unavoidable suffering, which means to me in in modern day terms, we all go through life's challenges, right? Shit happens to us in our lives that we don't expect or don't want necessarily. And it's our attitude or the perspective that we take on those things that happen to us that really changes our experience of those things, right? So obviously COVID is, is a great example because none of us really expected that to happen. Shit's gone down, things have happened. And I think the people that have really been able to, I guess, I mean, we've all experienced different things during it, but to be able to make the most of it is to be able to shift your perspective around, I guess, what's happening, right? So if you can incorporate these three things, right, um, doing something for someone else, having someone or someone else to love and the perspective or the attitude you take towards life's challenges or things out of your control – that is what uh, you can find meaning or purpose in your life. Mm, I like that. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the finding finding something to love, someone to love, what is love but kind of the, the removal of barriers to connection, right? And I mean, if, if you believe that right. all of us are one and everything is one in some sense, which, you know, you zoom out far enough, it is, right? Like mm-hmm. from the moon, we're all one. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then I think love is realising at least with one person how connected you are or one mm-hmm. something, how, how connected you are. And I think that's kind of, yeah, that's the avenue that I'm expanding in in my capacity to feel meaning in life, you know, right now is being able to feel connected to everyone and everything, mm-hmm. you know. I've often always kind of felt like, yeah, I want to have a meaningful life so I do nice things for friends and, you know, that kind of thing. And then in the times that I've had where something awful's happened in my life or it's, you know, been really hard, I've tried to have an attitude towards it that I would be proud, you know, looking back on, I'm proud that I responded that way. So just, I guess, essentially that means not avoiding and there's a million ways we can avoid things and that's usually what brings people into my clinic to see me as a psychologist is there's something going on that's causing them to avoid feeling what they're feeling, you mm-hmm. know, there's, and it's not necessarily a conscious thing, but maybe they're laughing at their pain. Maybe they're intellectualizing over it. Maybe they suppress it and turn it against themselves or who knows, a million different things they could be doing. Um, but that's what creates suffering. And I think knowing that luckily as, you know, like a psychologist, 
when awful things happen, it's one of the surest things we know in psychology that is that avoidance doesn't help. Mm. It makes things worse usually. Um, so I've tried to t- – that, that third point, have the attitude you take towards unavoidable suffering, and yeah, you can't have a life without pain and without suffering. Um, I've, I've kind of always tried to have a good handle on that one um, and maybe in recent years I've been better at it. The first one, helping – you know, trying to do nice things for people. I can get better at that for sure, but that's something I've at least consciously known is a good thing to do. I want to try and put my behavior behind it a little more. Um, but yeah, I think the, the sense of connection to everything, like a spiritual feeling of uh, meaning and oneness has lacked, I think, for me. And now I now it doesn't lack. Like I, I feel it, which is nice. That's so nice. It's good, right? Well, I feel like, you know, because we talked about a lot of spiritual philosophies, like when we and we were young, you know, late teens when we started mm. talking about all this stuff. So this is the kind of shit we talk about. Um, but yeah, I feel like that's good because I feel like you were really exploring then, mm. and maybe seeking, I think. And maybe now you've found some answers. Yeah, at least for the moment. I for hope it moment. sticks around. Mm. And I mean, one thing that actually helped as well, I saw this person to get havening. You heard of havening? No, I haven't. What is it? It's like a kind of treatment um, for, you know, whatever, um, all kinds of different things. But it's very similar to EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't heard of that either. So I've just trained in EMDR and you can use a lot of the same protocols for EMDR and havening. Okay. But basically, um, havening, at least the theory as I've been told, is that it puts your brain into kind of like an alpha brainwave state, which is a little more relaxed. It's kind of what you typically get when you're meditating if you're doing it right. And, and at the same time, you're encouraged to think about, you know, themes, uh, you know, certain experiences or images you have in your mind along schemas, like themes of beliefs you have about yourself and the right. world. Like, you know, and for me, a big part of it was, you know, worrying what people, like kind of worrying about other people, like I've got to take care of them or worrying what they think and that, mm. that kind of thing. Anyway, through that process, I've had this weird shift where now I – um. I kind of feel more in my body. I think there was like a very low level of dissociation going on where I was kind of right. watching myself from the outside. In some ways, I think it's a bit of an overhang from acting where you live life, I did anyway, constantly monitoring myself, trying to work out, oh, is this something I could use in a scene one day or, in, you know, for, an, I don't know, some kind of performance later on. I fucking hate that, man. Like, I don't want to live like that. I want to be, right. if I'm talking to someone, I want to be talking to them, not thinking, you know, what's this like? And remember this. This is how what it's like to hear that someone's had something bad happen. I just want to be in that moment with the person. Funnily enough, yeah. though, not being present in that moment means you're more likely to forget that moment. So if you, you right. sit more in a third-person perspective and you're mm. almost like observing yourself in that moment, yeah. you're less likely to recall that moment because you were not in your body and not present when that moment was happening. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, yeah, so I kind of always experienced life almost like – it felt – the best way I can describe it is like wearing a – astronaut helmet where you can see through the glasses clear but you just get this faint reflection of your own face and I guess it's like self-consciousness you know I would be seeing you but just kind of aware of like what I might look like from the outside or my not even just the way I was looking but my person or whatever um and it was distracting and annoying and I felt like I was less engaged in life for it um and life felt less like I was just in my body looking out of my eyes. 
but this evening really worked well. And now I feel like I'm in my body looking out of my eyes, exactly what I wanted. And that reflection is gone. I just feel like I'm in the world without like a helmet on or something like that. Mm, and it's weird because I've always been pretty happy for, except for particular down patches, but that was an annoying way to live. I didn't like living like that. Didn't you feel that when, you know, cause we both studied Meisner as well. And I feel like, did, did you not feel that when we studied that kind of stuff and, and studying acting that it brought you back into your body to be not conscious of that? Cause I, I felt like acting taught me to be, less self-conscious right so like obviously if you're in in scene or in the middle of an exercise you you have to be completely like we we're just talking about completely present in the moment to be able to respond organically and authentically so you didn't find that that acting taught you how to not be self-conscious and be more present mm. in parts it, in, in some ways it did i did some acting courses where you know it's all about like you know you just like cry, cry. The teacher's like, you know, cry, imagine your family's dying and you've just got to be like on stage. I mean, that's pretty well, that's... embarrassing. I wouldn't do that now. But, you know, it does op- did open me up emotionally. And a bunch of my friends, you know, who were there at that course, we were all kind of experienced a, a big opening up emotionally, which was really good. Yeah. I think that turned me from a numb kind of a person into when I was like, you know, 20 or whatever, into someone who could feel emotions a whole lot, which is my natural state Yeah, to be, you know, pretty uh, sensitive, you know, like moved by things easily, which is a nice way to live. Acting definitely helped me with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely helped with that. Hmm. That's really interesting. I feel like um, – I mean, definitely as actors, I feel like we're we, – well, you – if you're going to do well as an actor, to be able to access your emotions, you sort of have to allow yourself to feel those emotions that, like you were just saying before, a lot of people in – I suppose, who haven't studied acting before may default into avoidance because they're uncomfortable. You know, as an actor, you have to go into feelings that are uncomfortable and you then, and you also have to consciously put your, knowing that it's going to be uncomfortable, put yourself in a position where you're going to feel those really shitty emotions, pain and suffering. And, you know, I, I remember doing Meisner and, and um, which is an acting technique, guys, um, that, you know, I was doing it every day when I was in LA and by the end of it, every day I'd be really emotionally exhausted. You know, like when you've gone through something really hectic in your life, that's what it felt like. But you were actively putting yourself through that because you're, you know, being able to access those emotions for the craft of acting. So I, I feel like it's um, been beneficial in that respect to to be able to connect to your emotions. So therefore, when you do go through things, I suppose, in your life, it's more familiar, I suppose, right? Yeah, you've built a habit of not avoiding, which is very yeah. valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. Um, so I wanted to uh, c- kind of swing back to the the spirituality stuff and find out what your spiritual practice is now. Do you have a like routine or something that you do? Mm, I meditate every day for ten minutes, and you know, when I was eighteen or something like that, I did a uh, ten day silent retreat. So I learned how to meditate then. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Was that TM? No, it wasn't. It no, was, it was. Um, uh, Vipassana. Vipassana, yeah, yeah. That's right. I remember that. Um, that was pretty good. Um, and I think I had a big experience then of realising, oh, everything's okay. Everything will be okay. Um, yeah. You know, not to say that everything's okay in people's lives who are having horrible traumas or whatever, but I felt like, I guess, on an existential level, everything was okay. And then, you know, I guess I've felt that that's been obscured at times, but no, known that it's there, like the sun behind the clouds or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I just... Um, I don't know, I sit and I ponder and I think I get a lot of meaning from my 
work, you know, because I'm talking to people who've had awful things happen and I spent four and a half years as a at Lifeline working there as a suicide crisis counsellor, crisis supporter. So, you know, I've talked to people in the worst moments of their lives. Um, and, yeah, I think that makes me very grateful. So, you know, I just write down things that I'm grateful for every day and meditate 10 minutes and then just ponder and reflect and think about what's the nature of consciousness and try and just watch my mind and watch, like be aware of my mind rather than necessarily get too caught up in it. Um, And I don't know, I guess it's trying to hook into the experience of being, like what does it feel like to be alive, you know, versus not existing. What what tells you that you're even existing? There's well, something you're not prior to kn- thought. You you won't know that until you you're not here. Well, I guess we don't know anything then. I mean, well, exactly. This is why I think that question that what you know, like, what are we? Because I think you've asked me that too. What? Why are we here? Or what? What are we exactly? I'm like, well, we're we're never going to know. You know, that's the thing. No one, no one is going to know that until we're dead. Some people know it. Whether they're right or not is another thing. But well, they exactly. know it with all their heart. And, and, then, envi- and then that's I have been thing. envious of that. But I think, you know, you can you can have experiences in various ways that will show you kind of at least one answer that we're all connected and we're all one, you know. Um, like Bill Hicks's perspective on this stuff is pretty good, I reckon. He's a comedian. He's dead. He's a wild man. Uh, he died when he was only 32 in like 93 or something. But I've been doing a deep dive into him recently. I loved him a long time. Right. And he had a perspective that, you know, we're all one, it's all a ride and we're kind of convincing ourselves temporarily. We're c- oneness is convinced temporarily that this ride is real. And so we uh, have furrows of worry about this and that and, you know, and then at some point the ride ends and we are absorbed back into kind of oneness and realise, ah, you know, it was a trip. I went to experience being human for a little bit. Yeah. You know, and I think that kind of makes sense to me, you know, I think that's my... But then if that's, that's the answer, then we can just – then that's the end of the pondering then. Yeah, and for me, really? there has been a massive drop-off in the pondering on that stuff recently. Mm. So, it, it's more about, I guess, less for me about pondering what is the nature of consciousness and more just trying to sit and be and live. aware or conscious or just, you know, just find myself sitting looking out a window or whatever without necessarily thinking, like okay, I'm going to sit down and be spiritual about it. Um you know, I guess for me, I want to have fun. I want to have fun and laugh a lot and hang out with mates who I can laugh with and give shit to and mates where I think, man, you're, this person is so amazing. I feel lucky to have them as a friend. I mean, that for me feels like a good use of time, you know. Mm. Um, and I guess I've always – actually, I think this is where a lot of my pondering comes from. I've always been afraid of death like or right. afraid of dying, afraid of not existing, afraid of being t- – of the fact that I'm temporary. I've had this idea that I have to somehow like that, that if I, if no one will ever remember me in a thousand years, then something that, that just made me feel awful. And I think I've got some relief from that now. Right. Um, There's a story that I yeah. remember from a book about that. I don't know what book it was, but it comes to mind where, I don't know, some guy, I don't know who he is, maybe some person dies and goes to heaven and then they 
he kind of gets led up into the gates of heaven and um, and the angel or whoever uh, says, okay, so you made it to heaven and you did all this cool stuff when you were on earth. And so because you were so amazing on earth, I can't remember, he, he must have been like someone significant, right? So then the angel says, okay, so since you get you did all that on, on earth, you get to write your name on this really massive um, like gold mountain or something like carve your name into this mountain and so he's like feeling all awesome because he's like yes I made it like I did all this cool stuff while I was on earth now I get to write my name on this gold thing he goes to the gold mountain whatever it is and then realizes like there's no space for him to write his name on the gold mountain because there's like names everywhere already scribbled on and so he goes back to the angel and says well there's no room like where do I put my name like there's already you know a million different signatures here and then the angel's like well you just have to scrub another guy's name out and just write yours and then he kind of realizes like oh like there's been millions of people before me that have been significant and it just I don't know it doesn't really mean anything I suppose is the moral of that story um and just isn't it more just about your experience of your life mm. you know rather than yeah um how people perceive you or Things that I get, again, like that that outward, anything external to you, you know, at the end of our lives, like, are we going to look back and go, oh, we achieved this much or we have this much money in the bank or we whatever, all these external things when really like, I think for me, my belief is if you can look back on your life and go, yeah, I lived my life according to what was true for me and whether that's your heart, your intuition, your soul or whatever you want to call it, you might have some sort of... Um, uh, other terminology for your spiritual connection. Um, but as long as you can look back and go, I live my life, you know, with, when for me it would be like honesty, integrity and authenticity. If I live my life that way, I'm good. Mm, you've always been good at that actually, like kind of having a, like a simpler philosophy on that that kind of cuts through the... Uh, like pondering mm. and gets to an experience, mm. you know. I think your your perspective on that takes you to uh, living life in a really full way, which is yeah. nice. So another thing that I feel like we've – there's a little bit of a connection here, obviously, between acting, human behaviour, psych. So let's go into this little um, section where you transitioned, obviously, from being an actor into a psychologist and I wanted to know whether um, – you know, that really informed your decision to become a psychologist or was it something more – because your dad's a psychologist as well, obviously. Um, was that a large part of it? What what kind of really was the kicker that, like, made you decide to become a psych? Mm, I think there were a few things. I think I just, you know, I mean, wanted to help people. That's kind of the main reason I think most people get into the game, social work or psychology – and I felt like I'd always felt like acting was super, super meaningful. And look, I think it is. I love, imagine a world without art, right? Mm. But I guess I had some experiences that made me realize, well, it's not the best way for me to contribute. I just don't think I was that well suited to acting, you know? Like you have to kind of get yourself to believe something that isn't true. Uh, and, you know, you can sometimes kind of do it. I mean, other people can. I kind of could sometimes um, I don't know I just always felt a bit like a not the right fit even when I had good success um, for a, a few patches there um, you know like I'm I like truth I want I want the truth 
that's kind of where I think all my pondering comes from is I'm, I'm fascinated by truth. I want the truth. And acting, you do have to kind of hypnotize yourself for something to believe something and feel things that you wouldn't ordinarily feel. And that's a beautiful thing to like be moved by a story and convey someone else's story or whatever. But I guess I realized, yeah, for me, I want to make a contribution in a different way, you know? Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if it came from dad having been a psychologist, I guess, how can you discount that entirely? You know, you grow up with a dad who's a psychologist the whole, all of your life talking about it. Well, exactly, of course yeah. it's in there. Um, but I guess I, I heard from dad about jobs he'd had, like being a crisis counselor in a hospital. I love the idea of that. Um, you know, going, being a, like a locum psychologist, I guess in like a cat team type situation. And he told me about, you know, showing up to help someone who was suicidal or sitting there with a gun and, you know, he goes in and has a cup of tea with the guy. Um, you know, would have done that a bunch of times and just thinking, wow, holy fuck, you can kind of be like a, like a hero in a way. Like you can be there for someone when they need you most. And I thought that's pretty good. Um, so I started studying it and working in disability support and I did that for five years, you know, helping out folks who had intellectual disabilities, which was awesome and funny. Um, and started working at Lifeline and I guess it just, once I decided to commit to it, I just fully committed to it and I, you know, worked really, really hard at uni and worked hard at my voluntary role and my job as a disability support worker. Um, and I guess once I made the decision, it was kind of easy. It was like, all right, well, I'm going in this direction now. So I just took all the energy I was putting into acting, rotated it around and was like, all right, the train's going on this track now. And I threw a whole bunch of extra coal in the engine because I worked way harder with psychology than I ever did with acting. Maybe if I'd had the structure that I've had with psychology of regular assignments and deadlines and things like that, I would have got it. I would have put more into acting. But I mean, for me, a lot of the time in LA was, it was great hanging out with Tim and Marty, you know, best mates and you and Damo um, and, you know, just we were just smashing the gym and mucking around and going out to bars a bunch of the time. I mean, it was just a fun social time for me. And then I found great acting classes that felt awesome and pushed me to have really great experiences of connection and emotional expression, which was great. Um, and just like I said, the, the experience of pursuing a dream was great. But the lack of structure is a fucking killer, man. Because, you know, you walk around and you're like, well, how the fuck am I going to get that sense of having worked hard today so I can enjoy a drink tonight or catching up with mates tonight? Sween was never, never amazing with time management. Self-time oh, management. Really bad with that. I, 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 I actually, really bad. I've realized that I quite like chaos in my environment to some degree, you know, like I don't like throughout my six years of study, I would study in a restaurant one day, a bar the next day, a pub the next day. I'd go camping and study there and then I'd be in a library one day. But I could never do more than like one or two days a row in the same place when studying. I just like being in different environments. Um, yeah, so I, I realised that I quite like – I don't like too much order. Yeah, you like things to be a, a little bit more flexible. Yeah, 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 That's yeah, which is obviously frustrating to... for you because you're more organised than me. <laughs> but um, – yeah, I, I feel like back then, you know, you'd be kind of thinking, what can I do to, f you know, further my career as an actor? Be like, oh, how about I watch one of Heath Ledger's films? I don't know, watch one. You go, oh, yeah, I guess that's work. Like, I guess I did something for my career today. I guess I'll have a drink and relax, you know. <laughs> kind of sit there guiltily thinking, I haven't fucking earned this, you know. <laughs> Whereas I, it's so nice having the structure of hard work and then relax. You yeah. Know? I mean, I think that's a f very simple thing that our society – 
that civilized society has. I feel like you know, it works maybe well for you. Thespians, we don't always have, you know. Works well for you. I pr- I like to kind of just do my own structure, but that's just. Well, me. then you're more chaotic than me in that way, right? Well, not really, because I feel like I'm. I. But can, you create the structure. I create my own structure. I'm not actually that good at creating well, the structure so much without the, without uni giving an overarching. You have to have this done by here, this done by yeah, here. You know. Yeah. So that that kind of just work. I I like to create my own structure. You're right. Um, but you know, through the years, obviously, we've known each other for a long time, so we've seen each other go through a lot of different things in our lives, a lot of life challenges and um, experiences of you know. Those kind of uncomfortable feelings like grief and loss, anxiety, that kind of thing, which is have it has been collectively elevated during the whole COVID crisis thing. Um, but, you know, just personally in our own lives, having dealt with certain challenges. So I really wanted to kind of um, get your thoughts about how you've dealt with your process with dealing with grief and loss and or anxiety. But I know grief and loss specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think in some ways we've responded in a very similar way or like at least with a similar ethos mm. to that in our mm. own lives, right, um, respectively. Um, and I think for me, like I said, in being fortunate enough to have studied psychology, I've had the – had it just pounded into my brain that avoiding things doesn't work. It doesn't mean that you should just go talking about all your traumas and even especially right after trauma, talking about it too much increases chance of developing PTSD. So you have to be careful. Mm. Um, But, you know, for me, when I was going through a period of having lost someone and feeling a lot of grief, I, you know, a lot of people tell you things like you shouldn't feel you know, certain emotions like guilt is a big one that people don't want to protect you from if they love you, which is lovely. But, you know, too bad. You can't have a life without grief and loss and guilt and anger and sadness and all of those things. And when you try and deny them, you create suffering for yourself, I believe. Um, So knowing that, being fortunate enough to know that and having, you know, a really good level of safety in my life you know like I've got a great family I've got great friends I've got stable living situation all of that um I was able to kind of go all right well look I'm feeling all these feelings I'm just going to go into them so you know went camping for a few days and decided to just feel all the feelings that people saying oh you shouldn't feel this or whatever um and I think that has really helped me you know um because you know I think it's the reason why when, you know, anniversaries of, you know, those things come around, it doesn't rock me around because it's not like I'm being really careful not to think about those things or feel them and then suddenly there's this unavoidable reminder that, you know, that's been my approach and that's kind of your approach as well, right, with that stuff is you de- you're determined to feel it yeah. because you know that it'll hurt but yeah. ultimately it's going to be the most healthy thing, right? Yeah, like I feel that, I mean, and I feel like a lot of my friends who maybe don't know me as well as you do, um, you know, find it weird. But I, I know what I need when I'm going through something in life, like a life challenge, grief or loss. I need a lot of time alone and I and I kind of, and I'm introverted anyway, but I know that I need to not be around people and to process the emotions alone. And so I'll spend a lot of time 
on my own either, yeah, emoting, which is essentially like if you feel shit, you feel sad, feel shit, feel sad, cry. You kind of have to get those emotions out because if you, like you've said before, if you suppress or you avoid, like they will come up at some point. They don't go, they don't go anywhere if you avoid them. So you have to allow them to process through the body, especially. So I definitely take the time to do that. And to get them out, I'll usually write. I do a lot of writing and, um, and I'll give myself what I feel I need, um, allow myself that space. Um, I usually go a little bit hermity, so I won't really see a lot of people. I'm not very social during that period of time so that I can process the emotions because the faster I can process those emotions, the faster that I can kind of come back to that stable point of me being just like this is like set point rage from, from you know, sort of – this is where I can live life from. I think when you're going through uncomfortable uh, emotions, like they, they're kind of like to me lower vibrational um, emotions. So they kind of bring bring you back a little bit from where you normally would be. And so it takes more energy to do everything else in your life. So I feel like, you, you know, for me, I usually employ a lot of self-care and yeah, same with you. Like allow myself to feel the emotions, don't judge the emotions, just kind of witness them and watch them come up and process how I need to process. And again, for me, it's just usually writing or emoting. And then slowly, slowly you come to a point where you've, you kind of have made peace with the, whatever the thing is that has happened to you that you can't necessarily control. Um, And like sort of Viktor Frankl says, it's your, your perspective about that particular thing. Um, If you can prescribe that event a, a meaning then you can kind of easily move on from it it doesn't mean you've forgotten what's happened to you or forget the experience but then you can learn something from it usually take it as a learning experience um, and then yeah like you said it doesn't things don't trigger you later on once you've processed it all then you, you're like it things might happen but it you notice it but it doesn't really affect you emotionally once you've done that I feel yeah, and I guess that's the aim of all trauma treatments. Mm. And recently, I've spent a lot of time learning a few, you know, multiple different ways to respond to trauma. Um, and they all essentially aim to do the same thing, which is help the person feel what they need to feel, move through uh, the memories in a way that allows the brain to process them so that they don't feel like they're kind of standing alone apart from the rest of them as this this almost like experience frozen in time where they feel they feel all the emotions associated with the event when they think of it and instead have it integrate into the rest of their memory network and their idea of themselves as just one part of them and their history. So then it's kind of like a um, it's been filed away so then they can recall it when needed and they might be reminded every now and then but it doesn't give you that jolt. It's It's been processed. It's part of your history. Mm. Um yeah. Did you when you grew up? Did you were you in, did you grow up in a household where you were allowed to feel things or were you told not to feel? No, I remember really distinctly my dad saying to me one time explicitly saying to me if you feel anything make sure you get your emotions out. Don't bottle them really? up. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And and be it's okay to cry, it's okay to feel whatever. Um just make sure you don't hold them in because it's not healthy for you to hold them in. So he, yeah, explicitly taught me that. Wow. Yeah. What that's about cool. you? Yeah, same thing. I mean, that's really? a good thing well, about growing up with a psychologist dad. Yeah. I mean, he's very sensitive, so he'll, he'll you know, get emotional watching things. One time my sister texted me and said, dad has cried three times during the one episode of X Factor or something. <laughs> and so it, was, it was nice. It's nice growing up with that. And my mum's very lovely. Yeah. But, yeah, did your dad kind of live by that as well? Like, did you see him... 
get emotional ever? Yeah, I mean, not not really in that way. Like, I don't think I've even, if I think about it, I don't think I've really seen my dad cry per se. But my dad's been a very, um, he's he's probably the reason why I am the way that I am. To a lot to do with kind of like deep thinking and philosophical thinking is because my dad has been a real um, explicit teacher of life lessons to me. So he will like you know with this these kind of books. He, he recommended me to read this book. He's recommended me to read a gazillion like sort of personal development and spiritual books, but he has explicitly taught me a lot of lessons. So a lot of the wisdom that I know um, I've learnt from him, I think, and the way that I am in terms of thinking about life and whatnot, I feel like comes a lot from my dad. So I don't know if it's he has necessarily taught me implicitly or by example per se. I would say that he's been a teacher like explicitly teaching me stuff. So saying to me, you should read this book and this is what this says or that you should check out this quote or he'll, you know, every time I talk to him, I feel like he, he shows me some other quote or some other book or something like that. So he's been a really great teacher, I feel, my dad, which has um, been a real, I'm very grateful for that because I don't think I would otherwise have been introduced to a lot of the things that I know now had it not been for him. So Cool. Yeah. It would be hard. It would be so hard if you were – if you grew up being told that you couldn't feel things, that it wasn't okay to feel things, right? I mean, mm. there's a lot of people that happens to. A lot of my clients at in the more regional clinic I work in, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of stuck because they come in to see me usually against their will. One parent's brought them in to see me. I'm trying to help them to, you know, feel what they feel. And then they go home and the other parent's telling them and their environment, especially at school or whatever, mm. well, especially at home, but sometimes at school as well, is telling them, you know, if you feel, you know, if you feel sad and you show it, then you're complaining or you're weak or you're, you know, a wuss or whatever. I feel like that's a very big um, social collective uh, ideology that perhaps we get taught. Some people aren't really conscious of that, especially with men, right, where this idea of masculinity comes into it and how, you know, uh, the kind of narrative around masculinity is about, um, you know, boys don't cry or if you show your emotions it's weak or if you show that you're vulnerable it's weak you know that kind of thing and so I feel I mean hopefully now it's changing a little bit and I feel like there's a lot more role models out there that are showing kids that it's okay to do that I think so and I I think we kind of need to be careful not to bully those dudes who are tough and Mm. have grown up with you know that I that belief that they can't, that fear of expressing emotion or they just don't do it or they feel numb or they numb themselves or whatever, um, kind of saying that they're toxic or whatever or that there's something really wrong with them or that they're doing it on purpose. Like they're doing it on purpose and they're not going to come to the table if people you know, talk shit about them for being dumb, for not being in touch with their emotions. And then we've got to be more kind of gentle about it, you know, um, but also meet them where they're at and be willing to talk shit with them, muck around and not not get too deep too quickly, you know. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it would be hard if you grew up your whole life in a different kind of environment to what we grew up in where you were told don't feel these emotions or I will disapprove of you, you know. I, your parent, will disapprove of you. A kid's going to get anxious anytime they feel those emotions because it was a threat to the relationship with their caregiver growing up. It's going to feel very anxiety provoking in other relationships when they go to have those emotions. It's going to be really hard for them and they're probably not even going to understand why 
to feel those emotions and maybe their life is better in some ways because they don't. Like if they're going to work every day in an environment where it's really hard and they have to suppress in order to kind of keep the peace at work or not be a, not have a target on their back, well, it might be hard for us to understand that as like coaches and psychologists in a touchy-feely kind of a world. Um, I think that's the point. It's just more coming from a point of understanding. I don't think any of us mm-hmm. are really going to uh, fully know what it's like to be somebody else or being in in somebody else's shoes and really experience what it's like to be somebody else with those beliefs but as much as we can try to at least not judge their experience because obviously that our experience of the world and how we grew up our parents and beliefs and stories that we've been told unconsciously or consciously that's going to inform the way that we then bring ourselves to the world right so it's just more almost coming from a place of empathy and compassion and rather than judging it as being right or wrong, it just kind of is what it is and it, and understanding the behaviour is separate to the person, right? So like you can – if even if you don't agree with a behaviour and I think acting teaches you how to do this a lot too is just kind of being non-judgmental about people's motives and intentions because by any means we don't know if it's conscious or not, right? We don't really know their background. So – just understanding that in itself and separating the person from their behavior, I feel like is a huge thing because someone could do something really shit and still not be a shit person. It could just be a unconscious belief that they have that they're, that's kind of playing out or something like that. Right. So yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like that would alleviate a lot of misunderstandings and conflicts and things around the world, but that all just then comes back to self-awareness and no one can really do that for you except for yourself, right? Like you, the relationship you have with you can only be done by you. No one else can do that for you, right? Mm. And I guess hopefully you find people along the way who can help. Yeah, support uh, but, you. But, you know, no one can take away your, you know, your strategies for avoiding pain or avoiding emotions. Maybe they can help you see them and guide you through a process of deciding if you want to let go of them or not. And if you are able to feel committed to putting them aside and feeling the pain underneath, well then maybe they can help you do that too. But yeah, ultimately the person's going to have to take those steps themselves, right? Yeah, exactly. So you've been saying too that during this period of time, during COVID, obviously it's been, um, you know, again, like I said, elevated um, levels of anxiety, depression, grief and loss as well. People have lost businesses, jobs, um, even just grieving the life that we once knew. I know, I know that we are in Melbourne returning to some sort of normality, but I mean, things are still different. So is there a commonality, do you think, with the people that you're seeing in clinic now of what they're coming to see you for? Like, is there something that they're collectively experiencing that you've noticed? Not really. I feel like people are experiencing kind of like an accentuation of problems they already had. Right. So kind of like highlights. Yeah, 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 you know. Um, And it's, yeah, being in isolation is really hard for a lot of people. I mean, probably for all of us almost. Um, People who are ending up being kind of prompted by it to come into therapy, it seems like, you know, they already had a depressive way of coping, like they're inclined to attack themselves or get angry at themselves, which I think is the cause of depression. And then – you know, they that's been exacerbated by COVID or, you know, there's previous traumas that are kind of coming to light or having more of an impact on them than they were before um, now that they're stuck at home and they can't see their friends. Um, or maybe, yeah, maybe they were dealing with something really hard. They were just kind of getting 
by or coping pretty well with it because they can see their friends regularly. They've built a great life for themselves. And now that's taken away. They can't exercise. They can't see their mates. Um, you know, they can't go out for a bite to eat. They're stuck at home. Not everyone likes being stuck at home, you know. Mm. Um, some people seem to be coping pretty well, but, you know, it's hard. Hard for a lot of people. The commonality, obviously, is the practical thing. Can't see your mates. Can't go out. Um, can't You couldn't for a while go out for a midnight walk or, you know, a very long exercise or get out of the city. And so people's coping strategies are taken away. Whatever they were dealing with, it's harder to cope with. So right. that's why people are more suicidal, I reckon. Mm. More um, depressed, anxious, that kind of thing. Yeah. At least the people and the samples that I see, that's what I'm seeing. Gotcha. So I feel that as well, you know, aside from dealing with COVID in the lockdown situation, obviously the, the virus still exists and there's going to be an after effect um, from this. I mean, you know, mental health is has has i mean the the focus on mental health has been huge during this period of time but beyond lockdown i mean what do you kind of see as being the after effects of this like do you think that there is going to be almost like an aftermath even though even though lockdown has eased now you know what what are the kind of things that you think people will still struggle with and what can they do in terms of self management tools that they can use like if anyone's listening um what can they do to kind of alleviate, you know, those kinds of feelings? I think they're doing a great job with, you know, say giving everyone 20 Medicare rebated sessions in Victoria rather than 10 and that's going to continue for the next few years, making telehealth available so people can get therapy without leaving their homes. That's also great. Um, I think the ongoing impact will be people have had businesses destroyed um, I mean, if they keep getting support and they can stay afloat financially, that'll be great. I do wonder if some people will have a sense of shame if, say, a family business has collapsed during COVID kind of un- under their watch when it's been in the family for generations. You know, they might have a strong sense of shame. I know a lot of farmers feel that um, if the drought causes their farm to kind of go under and it's been in the family for a long time and there's a high suicide rate among that population people experience that so that'd be what i'd be looking out for and you know i think it's you know the advantage of this over something like a drought is that the whole of the country and all around the world people are experiencing it so hopefully people feel some solidarity and feel less inclined to blame themselves and feel shame but kind of like i said before you know how you do one thing is how you do everything and a lot of people will who maybe already have a depressive coping style where they'll shame themselves, attack themselves and beat themselves up rather than just feel guilty about, you know, I feel guilt because the business went under. It's not my fault, but I feel guilt anyway. I'm just going to let myself feel it. Become shame. They attack themselves, whatever. They get depressed. People might cope with the loss of a business in that way. Um, I hope they don't. I hope, I hope it doesn't happen. I think we're doing a pretty good job. I don't know how long government support can continue for. I hope it goes well into the future because I think the economic implications of this are going to go well into the future that's pretty much the limit of my knowledge on economics you know i feel like i'm bullshitting already as soon as i say the word because i just have no knowledge of almost anything other than psychology so yeah i guess it it also kind of goes back to what we were saying before about you are not what you have and what you do um so while it's important to acknowledge the feelings people have about losing a business hopefully they can recognize that they are more than the the business or whatever it is that they've lost and not feel that they suddenly have no worth and then want to 
mm. kill themselves or something. Yeah, and I feel I feel like the big message is you know really trying to find. Um, a sense of worth with that, really create a, a rich inner world or uh, develop that connection between your, your you and your inner self. So, um, you know, that could be a variety of different things, you know, and you can call it spirituality, you can call it self-awareness, whatever kind of framing works or resonates for you, I feel like is it's really important uh, to cultivate that relationship with yourself so that when things like because inevitably in life things like this are going to happen I mean not maybe not to the extent of COVID but life's you know shit happens in life it's kind of inevitable that we're going to experience suffering or experience pain um, that, that's kind of just the reality of it and so you know to be able to develop that kind of really rich connection to yourself or to that inner part of you. Like you would probably, you would refer to it as consciousness or something like that, but it might be something different for, for you, you know, um, listening and you use whatever terminology works for you and, and find that because I feel like that really, uh, when you find that you, it does really bring you a sense of peace. I feel. Yeah. It's good to be able to sit with yourself and your own thoughts and all of that for, you know, Mm. 10, 20 minutes at a time. If you can't do that, it's probably worth finding out why and trying to figure out a way to do it. I think for a lot of people, it's connection inwards, but also during a crisis, you know, it might, it may be too much to ask of yourself to develop some kind of sense of spiritual okayness. It might be, you know, just try and stay afloat and do whatever you need to do that, which might be, you know, make sure you get out of the house once a day to go for a run or walk or whatever, or, and if that's too much, find something else. Mm. Um, it might be get a dog or a cat. It might be just make sure you've got regular phone calls with people um, so you can stay connected. I mean, this is all the, the basic shit that everyone's saying. Yeah. You know? um, but Do what works for you, basically. Yeah. Some people go inwards, some will go outwards and some will do both, you know. Mm. 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 Well, it's been a really awesome chat, Sween. As always. I feel like we, yeah, we could talk like this forever, but I feel Well, like I'm sure we will once the thing goes off, we'll, we'll just keep talking. Exactly. But yeah. um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you did, make sure you screenshot it and share it to your stories, tag at Rach Active. Now, Swing, you're not really on IG, are you? Well, I'm on it, but not you don't, in a way. I don't actively. want to follow. I don't post anything mental health. Yes. I just, I have unfollowed almost all my friends. I just follow meme pages. So I just watch, look at memes. I don't want to be addicted to that shit, so okay. I try and avoid it. So, point yeah. of the story, screenshot this and share it to your IG stories, tag at Rage Active. And thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoy this episode and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Rage Active Podcast.